podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This week on Red Inca, we're going to talk about a player that chances are you don't know much about, Duncan Spencer. And that's because he only played 16 first-class matches spread across 13 years. But there's a reason people still whisper about him. Spencer was fast. And so I got a guest on who's just been talking to people about just how quick he was. Jacob Courier, I'm the Fox Digital lead. Jacob talks about his tussle with Justin Langer in a locker room, Ricky Ponting mid-pitch altercation, dismissing Kumar Sangakara as his last professional wicket, and that time he roughed up Viv Richards in what would be Viv's last professional match. Oh, and Spencer was the first Australian cricketer suspended for using PEDs. Yes, there's not a lot of cricket here, but there is quite a lot of story. Let's start with the facts. How did you actually find the Duncan Spencer story in the first place? I know uber nerds like me, I've come across it a couple of times. There was the Rob Smythe article, but it's not exactly front and centre, is it, Duncan Spencer? Yeah, I, I can't take too much credit for um, knowing about Duncan Spencer, to be honest. There's actually one of the editors in the office, a, a guy named Brenton Cherry, who he happened to know about Duncan Spencer. It was during the whole um, COVID bubble of not too much sport happening and we're kind of scrounging around for stories. And, and he brought the name up and said, Jacob, why don't you have a look around and see if there's anything to this? So, you know, I did what every digital journalist does nowadays and popped his name into Google. And I was actually surprised if a fair bit came up. Um, Rob Smythe's article was one of the first things to come up. I think he did a far better job of telling Duncan's story, but from there, it was really just trying to work out how I could make it my own and tell it from an Australian perspective. It's quite interesting. I remember when Smythe wrote the piece and like, I'd heard the name, obviously, like I was a Shield fan in the 90s and yeah, I think I saw him once or twice. And it was always that mention of him being the fastest bowler that you never saw. And it's not the only one. There was an Indian guy a couple of years ago who apparently was incredibly fast and never even played first class cricket. And yet people kept talking him up. And when you look up Duncan Spencer's record, it's 36 wickets in 16 first class matches across 13 years. And yet because of that one thing, that speed, people just can't stop talking about him, can they? There's something primal about fast bowling. It just taps into something in our very core. We like fast things and there's a bit of an adrenaline rush that comes with seeing fast bowling, if you're lucky enough, producing fast bowling, and if you're unlucky enough, facing it as well. Especially in Australia where all the Australian fast bowling heroes, it was always the pace that came up first. Even a guy like Dennis Lilly, who could do so much more than bowl quick. You know, we talk about the the shirt being unbuttoned and him rushing in and bowling dead heat at the whacker, and then Tomo as well. Who's, you know, numbers aren't amazing, but because he could bowl that quick and he frightened everyone who played him, he you know got that status as the pinnacle of fast bowling, and then you get the West Indies, and there's something primal about fast bowling. I think it's interesting with India, as you mentioned, where um, fast bowling hasn't really been in the culture, and they've had a few come through, and they've gotten quite excited about it after long, hard yards at the MRF Academy trying to unlock this thing that just north of the border where they – got it going on a factory line and now it's happening in India and I think that speaks to as much as we like to claim it to be an Australian thing and a West Indian thing that's in the blood everyone once they see it wants it. And Duncan Spencer himself take me through his biography a little bit obviously he's from Western Australia and he ends up becoming a fast bowler but he wasn't a prodigal son he wasn't at a young age anyone thought that much of him did they? 
I think like a lot of fast bowlers, he almost discovered it a little bit by accident. He started playing cricket only when he was 10 years old and then by 15 he was bowling to Jeff Marsh in, in first grade. When he started playing, it was as a batsman because that's what he enjoyed doing. And then there were a few injuries for his junior team, so Duncan was all that was left, so they threw him the ball. And as it turned out, he was really quick. From there, it kind of just the mythology of Duncan Spencer really grew from the time he was 15 up until um. By the time he's in England as a 21-year-old playing that first season of first-class cricket with Kent, he's a bit of a known product on the WA cricket scene, which is what I found out talking to the, the boys in the state, that everyone in the state knew about Duncan. Everyone knew about this kid who was just absolutely rapid and would terrorise you with a short ball despite being 172 centimetres, which is you know short by any standards, let alone fast bowlers. So he, he's born in England but raised in Australia, as you said, was, is a batsman up until a certain age, is short, at the moment, you're not really pushing me on the fast bowling genius side of things, but he does have a couple of interesting things going for him. He doesn't mind getting in a scrap occasionally with <laughs> Justin Langer. For, it's funny, for years I was told how tough Justin Langer was, and now over the last couple of years, it sounds like every time he was in a scrap with someone, someone else ended up getting the best of him. Duncan Spencer was, <laughs> was one of them. And also, he had the big muscle car as well, didn't he? Yeah, gets into cricket as a 10-year-old, learns to bowl fast at 15. By 21, he goes over to play county cricket for Kent comes back to Australia with all the hype in the world. He only plays one season of first-class cricket in Australia thanks to the injuries. But amongst those games, he takes a four through against South Australia where he moves guys like Jamie Siddons and James Brayshaw and Tim Nielsen, you know, real big names in South Australian cricket. But the match he's most remembered for is a game against Tasmania, which is probably the first time you see that scrappy nature you were talking about where he's bowling to a young Ricky Ponting. And, you know, Punter was always a fiery character, even after he mellowed out as captain. And there's this game where, you know, he's bowling bouncer after bouncer at Ricky Ponting and Ricky Ponting, as is his way, is trying to pull and cut everything. He's not taking a backward step. They're getting into each other and eventually they almost come to blows in the middle of the pitch because Duncan has a shy at the stumps as Ponting leaves his crease and it just misses Ponting's head and it just misses Ponting's stumps. Punter's not too happy, he takes a step towards Duncan and Duncan says, don't let beer hold you back. <laughs> and the WA boys have to split him up before it gets too ugly. But, you know, I was talking to Brendan Julian and, and he mentioned to me, he was like, it's a good thing that they didn't get into a fight because it would have ended quite badly for Ricky Ponting because, as you mentioned, the Justin Langer story. So, as you mentioned, JL's always kind of been spoken about as this tough-as-nails karate kid, has had a black belt by the time he was 17. He liked to talk about that a bit and he tried to fire up Duncan in the dressing room one day and took things a bit too far and Duncan, who had a bit of a boxing background himself, put the old one-two on and put JL down pretty quickly. One thing I, I want to take you back to, because the Western Australian stuff is really interesting. A couple of years ago, I was at the WACA when Afghanistan were there for the World Cup and they had all their quicks, so Dalat Zodran, Shapo Zadran, were all bowling off as the longest possible runs you can have in the WACA nets, which isn't that long because the nets actually do stop you quite early on and they were absolutely terrifying and I was watching their batsmen if they can't handle their balls I don't know how they're going to go against Australia's balls in the middle of the whacker but the whacker nets are absolutely legendary and the way that life is going there will be a book or a podcast series just on stories from the whacker nets because they are generally as fast if not faster than what the wicket was and also they seem to be a way of like uh, it's almost like giving a little bit of red meat to the bowler beforehand the way that they sort of excite people so Duncan Spencer, he does sort of come from sort of outside the sort of mainstream of Western Australian cricket. As you said, he's thrown in at 15 after not even being a bowler not that long before in his life. 
suddenly he's in the nets. You, there's some incredible stories of him bowling in the nets that you've got in your piece, isn't there? So you, can you take us through a couple of those? It was fun talking to the WA State boys about facing Duncan Spencer in the nets, mainly because, you know, as you said, the Wacker nets, are, they're legendary. If you can make it in the Wacker nets as a batsman, then odds are you'll, you'll actually be all right in the middle. And it's even tougher because as every fast bowler does in the nets, they give themselves that extra foot on the popping crease. <laughs> but the guy I probably enjoyed speaking to the most about it was Brendan Julian, who just flat out said, I wouldn't face him. Like, it was a crazy thing to decide that you wanted to face Duncan Spencer in the nets. And the story he brought up and Simon Kadich also brought up just of their own volition. I wasn't really looking for anything in that. You should speak to Mike Valletta. I didn't manage to get Valletta on the phone, but the reason they were saying I should speak to Mike Valletta is there's Duncan Spencer, like a lot of fast bowlers when they were coming through, was quite raw and quite unpolished. He had some rough edges that needed sanding, accuracy being one of them. One day at the Nets, he let go of a hand-to-head straight at Mike Valletta's skull because he slipped on the popping crease. Valletta, luckily enough, had scored a century in his last match and managed to get his hand up just in time to push the ball away. As Simon Kadich told it, he was on the ground for one second with his eyes spinning the back of his head as his light flashed before him. And then the next second, he'd thrown his bat into the other net because he wanted to have a talk with Duncan about what happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's incredible to think that everything sort of came together. And the other thing is, and you mentioned it before, the 172 centimetres, there is a difference between the short fastballs and the tall fastballs. And one of the main things is you can't get away from them. And it seems that, you know, through your stories, there's almost a... I mean, obviously a very different kind of bowler to Dale Stain, but that similar thing to Dale Stain, that when he went short, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. You either hit it or it hits you. The ducking and swaying doesn't really work because the ball skids at you. Yeah. Mike Hussey put it to me that way. It was like, it was very similar to facing Dale Stain, which almost made him, I don't want to say a more difficult prospect than facing Brett Lee or Schaubachter, but if you're taller guys, you can just go, if it's a little bit short, I'll, I'll get out of the way. I'll survive. It's test cricket. I've got time. Against Duncan, it was oh, what do I do here? This is coming at my head. It's not steep bounce. It's very skiddy bounce. I can't really get out of the way of this. Mike Hussey described facing Duncan Spence in the Nets as an 18-year-old as one of the most terrifying experiences of his life. <laughs> and that, that's Mike Hussey. You know, he, he you know, lives in Braves Creek and he, he didn't want to face Duncan. You said before, was it Brendan Julian who wouldn't face him in the Nets? Were there others who did that as well? BJ wouldn't mention any names. He said there weren't many who were willing to face him in the Nets. <laughs> he said Mike Valletta was one of the main guys who was happy to face him in the Nets. But yeah, from the sounds of it, it, it sounds like a fair few of those WA boys were not too keen on facing Duncan. And does he start to get injured before he goes to Kent or after? So he's bowling in WA as a net bowler before he goes to Kent. If I'm remembering right, he has his first stress fracture as a 17-year-old. That obviously lays him out for a year or so, and then he starts bowling at the Nets, as a lot of rookie bowlers do, just to to help the state. But Tom Moody told me that when he was bowling at that stage, it was very much not because they needed a net bowler, but because they had eyes on him as a player who could be something. And then he goes to Kent. How does he get to Kent? What's the connection there? So Daryl Foster, the WA coach at the time, was also the Kent coach. Um, Of course, yeah. And Duncan Spencer, being a British-born lad, had the passport to get him over. So, yeah, that's how he ends up at Kent. So when is it Kent? And we'll get to the Viv Richard story later on, but when is it Kent? Are they thinking that he's a long-term prospect at that point? Because, I mean, he was, what would you say he was about 20, 21, and he's bowling. Yeah. We don't know how fast. He was never really tracked 100%, but we know he's certainly 90 miles plus. And this is, what, what year did he go to Kent? 
Uh, I think it was 93, 94 he was in Kent. So was there a, weren't that many 90-mile-an-hour bowlers. In, it wasn't like now where there's a few around. At that stage, he was probably one of a very small amount. So it was probably a huge coup for Kent to pick him up. Yeah, so they signed him on a two-year deal originally. I'm not sure I'd be lying if I told you I knew their long-term plans for him. Mm. They could have had longer ambitions than two years for Duncan, but obviously he gets that stress fracture in, in the second year. And you know, once that kind of thing happens, I think, a lot of counties at the time would have got nervous about signing a player for another season when he might break down. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so how much does he play for Kent in that first season? So he only plays the seven games for Kent in that first season. He plays five list A matches and two first-class matches. Obviously, they were aware that this is a kid coming from grade cricket who hasn't played too much first-class cricket. So they were keen to get him playing a lot of um, almost just park cricket on the Sundays to build his body up and then introduce him via list A and then into the first-class team. So he played a bit of the second 11 as well. And the problem for Duncan was that he was doing really well for that second 11 team, and that's what got him into the first-class side. But then there wasn't much of a gap between playing for the reserve side and then playing for the first-class team. So this guy's playing his first professional season. His body is still learning to adjust to you know the rigours of multi-day cricket. Goes from a second 11 game to playing first-class cricket two days later, Body can't handle it, gets a hamstring strain, has issues with his side, is obliques and is ruled out for a few months after that and has to make his way back into the team via the list day Sunday League Cup. I suppose the other thing there is that that's sort of what everyone's been saying about English county cricket and fast bowlers forever, isn't it? It's the lack of gaps that don't allow. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're a shield cricketer and you're in the first team, you're playing 10 games a year, you've got good breaks between all your games, even your limited over stuff, it, it, you know, there's a gap, especially 90s county cricket, there was no gaps. And if you're coming from second 11 cricket, it's like they had a Ferrari and they decided to <laughs> pack it for a holiday. Like it doesn't really make any sense, yeah. does it? If they had a player like that now, he probably would play far less second 11 cricket and they would pick certain games and certain pitches that would suit him. Whereas back then they probably just went, oh, he's doing well, let's get him into the main team. Yeah, it's funny how um, even in the last five years, there's been a real kind of almost science that's evolved to nursing fast bowlers when they're young and bringing them through the system. So yeah, Duncan, as you said, you know, young kid who's, all his life, especially the guy his height, has only known how to bowl express pace, has only known how to go at 100% at training and in games, has gone over there without any real support network other than Daryl Foster, the coach, but has to learn this all on the go. He's been shipped off to the second 11, so he's he's really having to do all this learning on his own. He said to me that like his, his big issue was that he just didn't know how to prepare, how to cope, how to sustain his body during that period. And um. To be fair, it wasn't really that first season where things went wrong for him. It's the second season when he gets that stress factor where it all kind of goes downhill. Yeah, but I mean, the fact that he got injured that first year sounds like he's already starting to overload his body and then not look after it. He goes back to WA now. He only plays very few games for WA, as you said before. In fact, he probably plays more after his comeback than he does originally. But it is worth saying that I'm going to try and remember all the Western Australian bowlers that would have been around by then. But Bruce Reed, when he was fit, would have still been there. Joe Angel, who played Test cricket, would have been there. Uh, Brendan Julian, obviously, another Test cricketer, was there. Tom Moody would have been there, fourth seamer um, and fifth bowler at times. Just breaking into that team is yeah. uh, it's not particularly easy. I mean, looking back on it, how they didn't win the Shield every year with their batting and bowling lineups, it's bizarre. Yeah, there should be a podcast on on that WA <laughs> team and why it wasn't all successful. <laughs> But yeah, like Duncan actually played a fair few Sheffield Shield games that season, despite his numbers really not being fantastic at any point for WA that season. 
he's probably one of the first bowlers who comes through as a rookie and a team just sticks by because they think he's got something despite not really producing. Mm. Yeah, so he, like, as a 21-year-old, to be in that WA side as a bowler speaks volumes. And so from there, he goes back to Kent, and he has a second back fracture at Kent. Is that right? So he has the first stress fracture as a 17-year-old. It's fairly injury-free other than some side strains, hamstrings, your, your regular bowling stuff, a few back complaints. But then has the second season with Kent, and he feels his back. He can feel it. Like, he knows he's done something wrong. And he tells the captain, I, I think I'm cooked. They go, all right, let's get some scans done. Let's see what's happened. Gets the x-rays. The x-rays don't say anything. So he's gone, you know, if the scans don't say anything, I can't pull myself out. Like, I'm playing for money. I'd like to be here another season. I can't look soft. I've got to keep playing. So he keeps playing. It just gets worse. Like, he's he's in more and more pain every game. Eventually, they go, okay, something's wrong. Hmm. They send him home to Australia. He ends up being one of the first people in the country to ever take an MRI which must have been some experience back then going into this loud whirring machine that no one else has been in. And the worst possible news is confirmed. He's got two stress fractures this time, a little bit lower down his spine, and he's also damaged his factile joints. I think that's what they're called, the little joints that connect the vertebrae. You know, he doesn't retire the first time for another four years, but he's adamant that's the injury that that ended for him. That's the injury that cuts his career short. It's worth talking about that period of cricket too. It's incredible that he had the first MRI. So we're talking, what, about 95, 96, 97? That's the point when Australian cricket is turning into the professional juggernaut that doesn't lose players like him. So just before him, you look at two Victorian cricketers that are quite interesting. You've got Troy Corbett, who had a list A bowling average of 11, gets called for chucking and becomes a cop in South Australia. Darwin, somewhere random, never plays again, right? Because there's no rehabilitation. He was a chucker and he just disappeared from the game. And then you've got Craig Howard, who, you know, Shane Warne says was more talented than him. Incredible bowler, huge wrongins. Craig Howard's body falls apart, but because he's not in the Australian setup, he's just sort of flicked away by Victoria and nothing happens. Spencer is just at that point where it probably wasn't Cricket Australia looking after him. It was probably more a Western Australian orientated thing. But he was just at that point where they probably would have kept someone around. Whereas I think that if it was two or three years earlier, he would have just disappeared. And, you know, whatever would have happened would have happened. But Western Australia obviously thought there is something here worth persevering with. It's just that he couldn't quite come back, could he? But if I'm not mistaken, he could bat a bit. So I suppose that they had something to work on with him. Yeah, so after the second stress fracture and the surgery and, and the third stress fracture, because he gets the third stress fracture only a year, a year later, as he told me, he actually spent some time in the WA second 11 just playing as a batsman because he was quite handy with the bat. When he comes back the second time, it's meant to be as an all-rounder. So he always had that to fall back on. But it's, it's interesting you talk about the, the timeline and, and kind of when he was coming through. I mean, you compare it even to like a guy like Pat Cummins much later, you know, late 2000s and how they handled him so he gets the stress fracture and he gets stress fracture after stress fracture but cricket australia keep him on the contract so that they can take care of his rehabilitation mm. process and that so that he's always in the system and always being taken care of duncan spencer you know while he's, he wasn't pat cummins pat cummins is a, a bowler who you could tell from the get-go was something incredible and had it all but if duncan spencer comes through as a guy who can bowl let's say if they were correct and he was bowling high 150s if he comes through now, there's no way that Cricket Australia or the Wacker are letting him just drift away. They're doing everything they can to make sure that his body is ready for cricket and that they've put the right rehabilitation processes in place. I think you're right. I think he's probably more in that 
Nick Buchanan mold. So Nick Buchanan was John Buchanan's son. Well, we don't know how fast, but roughly around 90 miles an hour. He certainly wasn't as quick as Duncan Spencer was, but could bats as well and was thought at one time, they were talking about him being a potential Freddie Flintoff from Australia. He was that, that kind of cricket. But his body just fell apart and fell apart and fell apart. And he had that brief comeback with the Brisbane Heat a couple of years ago. I think even if Duncan Spencer was in that level of talent, he just would have been in a better situation had it happened 10 years later. Whereas I think they would have looked at him the way they looked at Stan Lake or the way they looked at Jai Richardson, which is there aren't many people who can do what they do. I just don't think there was an overarching view for Duncan Spencer at that point. And so he sort of goes through the cracks, but maybe not to the point that even three or four years earlier, I think he would have disappeared altogether. And it is interesting that he plays for Western Australia second eleven as a batsman. When does he actually retire? When does he give it all up? Roughly 96, 97. You know, speaking to Duncan himself, he's a little bit murky on the details. <laughs> I think that whole cricket period's a little bit, you know, little stints of cricket between long stints of pain. So 96, 97, he's about 26, 27 years old, and he goes, I've got a wife and kids now. It's state cricket. It's not paying him much money. I've mm. got to go sort out my life. I've got to make a living, and I can't do that because I literally – I can't even mow the lawn because my back hurts too much. Might even be 97, 98, sorry. Might have, yeah, 97, 98, he calls it. That's when he gets the prescription for the Nandrolene and he gets his license to be a personal trainer and he's going down that line with his life. And how does he then end up back at the club nets? Is he playing as a batsman just in club cricket or was he just hanging around? So what happens is after he gets the 10-week course of the, the anabolic steroid, he just has a bowl at the nets because like any cricketer, he's curious to see if he's still got it. He's not as quick as he once was, as he was as a 20-year-old, but he's not slow. He's still got a fair bit of pace to him. He's, you know, I still like playing cricket. Maybe I don't do it as a profession. Maybe I go enjoy it as I enjoyed it as a kid. I do it with no pressure, and I just play it for the sake of it. So he gets in touch with Melville Cricket Club. He, his original club was Gosnells, but now he's at Melville, and he, he plays as a bowling all-rounder. So he's doing a bit of batting in the middle order, and he's also bowling. And yeah, so he does quite well for them in both facets. So he's in 2000, he comes back to cricket in 2000, playing club cricket, and just off his grade numbers, the people at WA are starting to take notes. Like, oh, now we always knew Duncan could bat, and it looks like he's bowling again, so his body must be okay. Let's keep an eye on this. And then he ends up playing uh, Tom Moody and Simon Kadich for, um, I think it's Rockingham Maljura Cricket Club. And he, I think he takes a 4 for or a 5 for. He bowls to Tom Moody and... And Tom, who's the WA captain, is he's pretty impressed. He goes, and he, so he takes Duncan aside at the end of the game and he says, Duncan, you're looking good with the bat and the ball. If you keep working on both of these things, so if you keep working on being an all-rounder, we might be interested in getting you into our one-day attempt. Duncan doesn't really think too much of it because that's the kind of thing that happens in fairy tales, right? No one retires, plays a game of grade cricket and then gets called up by the WA captain. Lo and behold, January 2nd, 2001, he's bowling in the uh, Mercantile Mutual Cup. And he obviously had taken the Nandrolone before that. But when he took the Nandrolone, he was a retired fitness instructor. He wouldn't have been up to date. That's probably that period where very few cricketers had ever been done for performance-enhancing drugs by that point. I'm trying to think if anyone had any major cricketers around the world, perhaps one or two in England. If I'm remembering it right, Duncan's the first Australian cricketer to get done for the doping. 
Yeah, Jason Crazier got done for cocaine around that same time, weirdly. I'm pretty sure it was cocaine. But yeah, I think you're right. I don't think there was any other. So there wasn't that big move. And also, at that stage, we didn't even think that drugs in cricket was going to be a thing. The Shane Warne incident happened three years after. And Shoaib Akhtar and Muhammad Asif happened around that period as well. But at that point, no one was even really talking much about drugs in cricket. The Australian Cricket Association, they'd only really just come out with their anti-doping policy at that point. Like in the 90s, which is more of a, you don't do steroids. It was mm. only early 2000s, it became an actual steadfast policy with punishment. So WA had a seminar on, on the anti-doping policy, but Duncan wasn't in, in the team at that point. So Duncan doesn't see this anti-doping policy. WA recruited him. He doesn't get told about this. They obviously also don't know that he's mm. had to do it, anabolic steroids to take care of his body. He doesn't really consider the steroids to be something that was going to help him play cricket. It's for his lifestyle. And it was a long time earlier too. We're talking six months? His final dose was six months before. As he remembers it, as he, as he says, it was a low dosage, a low dosage for 10 weeks just to get his back working again. He didn't think it was in his system. He didn't think it would be on a prohibited list. Test comes through. He's, it's one of the uh, prohibited substances they have a hearing, despite Duncan's ignorance, it doesn't matter, and he gets hit with an 18-month ban. At that stage, so when he came back for Western Australia, I remember him bowling. He wasn't 100 miles an hour when he came back. Yeah. I think I might have seen him bowl once when he was quite young. When he came back in the 2000s, there was a lot of hype about him coming back, but he was probably then high 80s to 90. It's not like the baseballers who disappeared for an yeah. off-season and then come back in different shapes you know, in the 90s. It wasn't that kind of thing. How did they try and support him after that? Or is it just, thanks for coming? It seems a little bit murky. Like, none of the WA boys really remember the state doing too much to get around him. But they were all very supportive and said, you know, this is ludicrous. It's obviously, he hasn't taken it to enhance his performance. But in terms of actual support from the state, I don't think there was too much. It's funny, though, because you know, if I was Duncan Spencer, I'd be very bitter about the whole saga, right? I'd be like, I was happily retired. I came back. I didn't get told that there was a list of prohibited substances. I didn't get educated on doping. And then I end up being front page news yeah. as a drug cheat and get done for 18 months and don't really get any support. But he seems quite at peace with it. It says a lot about him, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe because he's been through so much. But I mean, you would almost argue that there would be, I think I could see a player trying a legal argument now to be like, <laughs> I wasn't told anything. I came back. Yeah. But it is really interesting. Now, so that's his first comeback. That didn't end well. <laughs> his <laughs> second comeback, although he did take wickets, that was probably his best professional yep. period. If anything, like that period is his, that's his best time on a cricket field. He takes that mercantile initial cut. Duncan Spencer takes 11 wickets at 22.36, which has him right up among the top wicket takers for the tournament, despite only playing half of it. It's as well as his body has ever coped with professional cricket. Like, everything is going perfectly for him. I'm pretty sure WA is about to offer him a full contract. Mm. Then the doping ban happens. What happens, we'll get to the second comeback in a minute, but what happens after that ban? What, does he go back to being a personal trainer or...? Yeah, so he goes back to being a personal trainer and the way he kind of stays involved, he still stays fairly involved on the club cricket scene as a personal trainer. He does a lot, a lot of strength and conditioning stuff for various clubs at Great Cricket while also running a studio. And it's actually through his career as a professional trainer that he ends up having that second comeback. It's um, Duncan Spencer's life. 
he had script writers. Like it, it doesn't <laughs> make sense for this much to have happened to one person for it all to have linked so terribly beautifully at the same time. <laughs> so he's working with a club in WA and is that Ravi Bopara is the overseas pro? Yes, so Ravi Bopara is the overseas pro. He's um I think former under twenty one England captain. He's he's played a couple of seasons of county cricket and Duncan, like all those years before, decides to have a bowl in the nets and he has a bowl to Ravi and Ravi goes, Oh Duncan, you've You've still got something, mate. Have you ever thought about a comeback? How serious Ravi Bopara was being, only him and Duncan would know, but it lights a fire for Duncan's bench. He's still got that competitive edge. He's still got a bit of unfinished business. So he goes, so he decides, yeah, I'm going to have a, another crack at it. He gets in touch with Melville, his cricket club, says, listen, I can't do training because I've got a, a business to run to pay the bills, but is it okay if I started playing again? They're like, yeah, sure, Duncan, we'll have you. You know, why wouldn't we? <laughs> Former state player who's done quite well. Yeah, come over. So Duncan plays and he gets in touch with um, Murray Goodwin, former WA teammate and also a test player for Zimbabwe who's playing county cricket. I think he's playing of Sussex at the time. And he, he was. He was a Sussex legend, yeah. Yeah, so Murray's is in at Sussex and he recommends Duncan to Sussex who've got a bowler who I think has been done for chucking at the time. So they need to fill a spot. So, yeah. All of a sudden, in 2006, five years after he last played professional cricket and 13 after he made his debut, Duncan's in England again playing for Sussex. And what does he play? Does he play first-class cricket or list A cricket at that time? He actually plays two first-class matches for Sussex. He doesn't do amazingly well, to be honest, but he, he plays two first-class matches. But Sussex, I think their financial state at that time wasn't the greatest and they couldn't really pay him real good money and... He had a family to support, so he ends up leaving after two first-class games for Sussex, the second of which is against the Sri Lankan eleven, who he happens to remove Kumar Sangakara. His last act as a professional cricketer was to remove Kumar Sangakara, so that's pretty cool. And it's not just Kumar. He's got a pretty good list, doesn't he? When I write about bowlers like this, I remember when I did Asif Kareem, the, the Kenyan bowler, and you go through the list and you're just like, you have dismissed some of the best players <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And and Duncan Spencer didn't take nearly as many wickets as Asif Kareem, but he's also got quite a good list of guys that he got out, hasn't he? Yeah, so like you were saying, Duncan, he didn't take too many wickets, but the wickets he took were big. He got guys like Greg Blewett, former test player, Jamie Siddons, Tim Nielsen, James Brayshaw. I think he got Jamie Cox as well. And then on top of all that, he, you know, he should have had Viv Richards and he should have had Ricky Ponting. I mean, should have is a, a strong word. They were meant to be no balls, but he could have <laughs> had those two as well, right? Like, that's a strong list. Exactly. Well, let, let's finish with the Viv Richards story because it is amazing. So he's not really known outside of Western Australia when he gets to Kent. Darrell Foster has sort of brought him over. and It sounds like a bit of a project of his, probably to try and build him up a little bit. But he's obviously so good, he ends up playing. Viv Richards is 41, playing for Glamorgan. Yeah, would have been for Glamorgan is my, off the top of my head until someone in the comments tells us we're both wrong. Viv is beyond his best, but he's still Viv. Take us through what happens when Viv comes out to face Duncan Spencer. As the story goes, Viv Richards rated him the quickest he ever faced. So Viv Richards walks out to bat in his final professional match, and as you would for a guy like him, there's a standing ovation from the Kent crowd. He gets out to the middle, and from there the niceties are over. Duncan's first ball to him is a sharp, short one that Viv does well to to get a bat to at, at 41 years of age. And But the second one, the second one's a bit too quick for him, and it wraps him in the chest. And Viv's thinking, okay, I've got my work cut out for me. This isn't going to be a, a nice little swan tongue. I'm going to have to actually perform quite well. Anyway, it goes on like that, and 
Duncan's bowling, you know, probably as as quick as he did in his time at Kent. And he's peppering Viv, and and Viv is playing against his instincts. He's he's ducking, he's weaving, he's fending, and eventually he he can't help himself because he's Viv Richards. And if you're Viv Richards and some no name quick is bouncing you, eventually you you're going to have enough, and you're going to have a go. He has a go, and he ends up spooning it towards square leg, where um, I'm pretty sure Duncan takes it off his own bowling. He's happy, he's celebrating, he's just removed his his hero, and lo and behold, up comes that arm, but it doesn't go all the way, it just reaches parallel to the ground to no ball. So Viv returns to the crease and continues the innings. Duncan bowled a lot of no balls in his career, but he's pretty confident that wasn't one of them. He was, he was pretty happy with where his foot landed, but he was also happy to continue bowling to Viv Richards. <laughs> he was like, ah, you know, most situations you'd be pretty angry, but I got to continue bowling to my hero, so no complaints. <laughs> It feels like that's the story of his career, isn't it? Like, I mean, the <laughs> fact that he even had a chance and the fact that he had two separate chances, it feels like he's just like, other people didn't even get that. I had that opportunity and it was fun while it lasted and it just didn't last very long. Which, to be fair, none of his deliveries lasted that long either. <laughs> exactly. I think he's very, um, he's a wise man, Duncan. He's he's very appreciative for what he's had and he's, he's happy to look back. But he's, he's also not looking back at the what could have been. He's looking back at the the great memories he, he got to have on the cricket field and the thrill of bowling a 100 and whatever he bowled. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks for listening. If you go to the show notes, you can find a link to Jacob's Twitter account and also to his piece on Spencer. Please, if you can, review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or on each and every podcast platform that you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so a huge thank you to everyone who helps out. And if you can join us, there's also a link in the show notes to that. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the man who looks after your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoners by The Red Cricket. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season one included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But season two is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil Dolavira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil Dolavira and also delve into cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams.